the people of sake actually brought me into sake. Back in 1988, this place was actually in Ginza on the main drag. At first it was kind of soy sauce, it was miso. To the point where it actually changed my life. New Year's Day 1989. Uh, not just sake as a beverage, but all the culture and history. And Welcome and thank you once again for tuning into a brand new episode of Sake on Air, the world's one and only podcast dedicated to sharing and expanding the dialogue around Japan's iconic beverages, both sake and shochu. My name is Justin Potts and I am one of your regular hosts here on the show. And while the Japan Sake and Shochu Information Center is indeed back in business, we're keeping things a little bit at a distance for the time being as things are still in limbo. However, this week we have dug into our archives to bring you an interview that we've been sitting on for just a little while, but have been eager to share with our listeners. This week, we interview Andy Nyans, the owner and brewer of Tahoma Fuji Sake. I visited Andy at his home and brewery in the Ballard neighborhood of Seattle this past October. Having actually been born and raised in the Seattle area, it's safe to say that I actually have a great number of personal ties and feelings attached to the area. However, this was actually my first time being back in about 10 years. Having left Seattle before sake was even a blip on my radar in any shape or form, and then now to return to Seattle and then sit down with someone like Andy, who has poured so much of himself into that same craft that has brought me so much joy. It really, really was a special and a kind of a surreal experience. In this episode, the first 20 minutes or so are a live brewery tour. While a tour may sound like it ought to have some sort of a visual component to go along with it, honestly, Andy's passion comes through in a way that really paints a picture that's just as good, if not better, than any video could, I think. From somewhat technical to rather personal, this week's conversation has a little bit of something for everybody, something for the sake curious, as well as something for, I think, just about anybody out there who's spent time really considering what your work means to you and to those around you. As I was traveling with some excess luggage and equipment, our recording setup was super simple, maybe too simple, as you'll likely notice. While a little bit less than our ideal, I really do think that Andy's passion more than makes up for uh, whatever we may be lacking from a technical standpoint. Thanks again so much for tuning in this week. Let's get on with the show. Everything was really economical in here in terms yeah. of um, how we got it and things like that. Yeah. So, yeah. so I got my cooker. It's a very basic uh, shape direct fire so i've got a burner down here and then i've got a pot here which sits inside the stand okay. and i that's my boiler and then this sits on top yeah. so basically this is very simple method and it um it's got really soft pressure okay. so my cooking times are significantly longer than okay. they are in japan um and then this used to be used for making caramel corn in okay i was gonna the, ask you how, how yeah it was at the mariner it was at the mariner stadium and at the football stadium I think they would heat up the caramel in this, and then they'd pop the popcorn in something else, and then they'd dump it all in here. Yeah. And then this had a big auger coming down that would mix it all together, oh, and that's, that's how they made it. Yeah. So, oh, that's wild. So yeah, I got it for, the whole thing was like 200 bucks. Wow. So it's pretty, pretty much everything's used except for the dark concrete yeah. and the chiller. Yeah. And then I basically had to repurpose everything to make it usable for what I needed yeah. because there's not any real sake equipment over here. Specific, so, sake specific yeah. equipment. Yeah, I mean, so my, my 
biggest issues are number one, there's still some residual caramel in here. <laughs> so if I if I pack it really full, then the outsides tend to get some like discoloration. Okay. And then because it's a softer steam, if I pack it too full, I'll get some moisture. I get really wet, kind of too mushy rice on the bottom, and then the outer edges tend to cook fairly well, but then the center doesn't get cooked through as well. Okay. So it, if I do smaller amounts, I get much better cooking. Yeah, and then I don't, I'd love to, next time I go to Japan, I'll probably try and pick up some of the plastic bead bags mm -hmm. that they use as diffusion bags, because yeah. I think that would help as yeah. well. Um, so basically what I do is when I load it up and I get all my cloth in there, I'll put the rice in the middle and then I put some towels on the outside to help channel that steam through the rice instead. And then I need to re-insulate it. This is shitty insulation. So I need to upgrade my insulation game. But other than that, I mean, it's a fine, it's a fine setup. I obviously can't get a boiler in here. And then I don't have the finances to do a boiler and like a steam cleaner and all that. Cause yeah. I mean, the steam cleaners alone are like yeah. 10 grand. Yeah. So yeah, 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 <laughs> just yeah. gets to be kind of cost prohibitive yeah. and yeah. this is all kind of self-funded. So yep. it's not, yep. it's just not within my grasp. Yep. Um, yeah, as far as the rice cooking, like when I steam it, it's good. Yeah. I'm happy with it. Cool. I just wish I could do a little larger volume and steam yeah. it a little quicker. But other than that, it's fine. Yeah, so that's the that's the steamer, the Koshiki. And then here's my press. And uh, this was an old sink from a photography studio up in Vancouver, Canada. And thank God for digital or else yeah. I'd never have my yeah, press. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah so, oh, so this great. woman was working at a photography studio. They closed and uh, she got it for her husband who was maybe making screen prints or something. And he looked at it, he's like, I don't need something this big. So they were selling it and we found it and went up to Canada and visited uh, Kasugai at uh, YK3 yeah. and then uh, strapped this to the top of our car and drove home. And then, so basically I just have a, I'd like to upgrade the bottom knockout a little bit, but yeah. it's basically just a sink. And then yeah. I'll fill up my bags. I'll lay the false bottom down yep. so that the socket can run clean. Yeah. And then I lay this on top, and then um, this goes on into here to provide strength. This bar drops to the level that I need, yeah. and then this is just an air-driven piston. Yeah. Yep. So hook up the air compressor yeah. and start pressing. And then this is, it's a, it's a fairly soft pressure. I only get up to probably 120, 130 PSI, okay. which if I wanted to increase my compressor size, I could get a little more. Mm -hmm. But... Uh, it's nice because a lot of people who are making their own presses are using like um, jack presses and stuff okay. like that, right? Yeah. But they don't create a constant force. Mm. So as soon as you jack it down to where you want and get it tight and then you walk away, it's already losing force, yeah. right? There's no constant yeah. down pressure. Yeah. So this is a really nice, it's a simple design, but it works because it's constantly applying the pressure that yeah. you want it to. Okay. So I set a pressure gauge at, 80 it'll push it 80 i said it at 100 yeah. it'll push it 100 okay. so right. so yeah it's a nice uh a nice way of being able to keep constant pressure on it and then keep the press going yeah. instead of having to come in and you know adjust yeah. pressure yeah, all the time oh, that's yeah nice. so yeah so i press it into a carboy and then i'll dump it into the tank so these two tanks came from um there was another sake brewery called uh cedar river okay and uh he is a good friend of mine named jeff and he um his brewery was like a mile from here, Okay. but then he moved down to Burien, which is okay. quite a bit south, yeah, right? Yeah. So he just couldn't justify making that trip every day. Yeah. 
Um, so he kind of closed down. These were his large fermenters, okay. right? So yeah. for him to be able to create enough product to make it reasonable was a little yeah. difficult. Yeah. And the space he is in was very small. So he was trying to figure out like, okay, do I upgrade space? Do I upgrade equipment? Or do I just shut down for a while? Yeah kind of reevaluate things. Yeah. So that's what he chose to do, which yeah. is good. And then um, and then I got these tanks from him. Nice. So before I had these tanks in here, I had two of the dairy tanks. Okay. And they took up a ton of space. And then it quickly became evident to me that I didn't need that much capacity. Mm. Like, this is my main fermentation tank. And when I do a batch, I can pretty much press all the batch into here, right? Because once yeah. it's clear, it's a lot less volume. Yeah. So I just kind of took that as like, okay, I should just redefine my space a little bit. Yeah. And I, these are single walled. So I wrapped them with some pecs and then insulated them. And then I can just hook them up to my glycol system. I can hook them in and unhook them. Yeah. So, oh, so that's nice. Oh, and then this is a jacketed tank. So it's got, it's got the ability to be chilled really efficiently. Yeah. So there's my chiller. Okay. And uh, despite the tradition, I have sort of stopped stirring as much as yeah. I used to. Yeah. Um, somewhat for logistical reasons, but also philosophical. Yeah. <laughs> we can get into how I got started on all this yeah. in a few minutes, but um, I mean, obviously, yeast needs oxygen yep. at a certain point, and it doesn't need oxygen after that. Yep. So the initial stirring phase is good to get oxygen into the yep. into the yeast and create a healthy supply for them. But stirring every day, twice a day, is at a certain point, you're just inducing oxygen into your batch, yeah. right? So yeah. you're creating more opportunity yeah. for things that you don't want. Yeah. So yeah. I kind of go for like the first week to week and a half where I'll stir occasionally. Yeah. And then after that, I just kind of yeah. let it do its thing. And uh, I've seen to have been doing okay with it. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, there's times where sometimes I question it. Like this fermentation got a little bit stuck. Uh, it just, it got a little too cold and then it kind of slowed down. So I let it rewarm up and it kicked back off, yeah. which was good. But at one point I was like, well, maybe I should be stirring and giving yeah, that yeah, yeah. new oxygen because, you know, it's recreating itself. So yeah. I was like, maybe I need to give that new generation more oxygen. Yeah. And uh, I think it was more temperature related in yeah, that case. Been, so, yeah, so I'm just going to keep doing that for a while and yeah. see what happens with it. But yeah, then we can take a look at the Koji room. Yeah. You can feel free to come in and just kick your shoes off if you don't mind. So this is my tiny little Koji room, nice. and uh, I bring in and have a cloth here, and then I, you know, spread the rice out, yep. let the let the moisture and humidity out, let it kind of get to where it wants to be, yeah. do my propagation here, mound it up, let it sit for my, you know, 20 hours, and then I will bring it over to this table, yep. and then... Uh, this table is nice because I can adjust the size of it quite easily. Yeah. So if I'm doing Absolutely. a small amount, there you go. Yep. You know, a bigger amount, just pop it open yep. and I can use the whole table. Um, so it's a pretty straightforward method. The first brewery I worked at, we did all Koji Buta. Yeah. Right. So initially I thought, oh, I'll do that. It's nice. great. Yeah. And then, and then I went and worked at a little different situation for a while and got exposed to a, the table method yeah. and I just thought oh that makes a lot more sense for me individually because yeah. I'm not going to be making massive amounts of koji yeah. but when I'm making a large amount you know doing all the koji buddha yeah. by myself is just such a pain right yeah, yeah. so this is a much more efficient method yeah. for me to be able to produce in Absolutely. and then my koji yeah my koji yeah. production has just gotten better and better great um so this is kind of how I do it yeah. Nice. Yeah. Very nice. Very nice. And then here's my little heater.
Perfect. Just a nice electric wall heater. It holds the temperature really tight. I think it's like a half a degree fluctuation. Yeah. And then if I need to, I have a little humidifier, dehumidifier in here, but I rarely use it. Yeah. Um, if I'm doing production kind of early summer, late spring, mm -hmm. then I tend to use it. Mm -hmm. Or if I'm kind of kicking things back off early fall that yeah. it's still warm out, yeah. then I definitely use that a little bit. But in winter, I just open up the door and it cool. yep. goes right yeah, out. Absolutely. <laughs> so, absolutely. so yeah, it's, it's pretty... You know, it's a nice little spot, and it's kind of like my haven in here. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so, absolutely. so we're, we're standing in the cold room a little bit. What are we standing in here? What is the structure? Oh, we built it. You just built it, right? Yeah, it's like it's sheetrock and okay. paint and um, insulation. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So, so I'm gathering you're, you're pretty DIY. My dad's a carpenter. Okay. So I am capable with my hands, but he has all the knowledge. Okay. So I dug every inch of this place to prep it. You know, I dug all the trenches for all the utilities and all that. I've, you know, I was involved with all the building. Yeah. It's basically he and I doing it, but yeah. it's his knowledge that was able to provide me the platform to build oh, it. Great. Yeah. If I had to build it on my own, yeah, not gonna happen. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah but he and I together can yeah. get it done. Yeah. So yeah. So it's been great. I mean, I, I worked in breweries in Japan, and then when we came back here, I worked in beer breweries. Okay. So I have a pretty functional knowledge of, like, how a brewery should function, yeah. right? So I wasn't, I mean, there's still been, since from the beginning of this till now, there's been constant change, right? But that being said, I still had enough foresight at the beginning to understand, okay, I need tanks of this volume. I need... Um, you know, approximately this much space. I need outlets over here and over here, right? Because yeah. I had kind of a general idea of what I needed to happen. Yeah, so if I had come out of a homebrewing background and then tried to build up to this size, it's a really different kind of growth yeah. because then you're trying to figure out not just the process, but how do I get bigger in that process, right? So I, I worked with enough volume to where it's like, all right, I know I need a 500-gallon tank in order to accomplish what I'm doing. Yeah. So, so those kind of things are like, they're definitely beneficial coming into it because it helped reduce a lot of the early mistakes. I mean, there's, I've still made a ton of mistakes. So <laughs> all part of the it's all part of it, right? Yeah. I mean, the first batches of Koji I made in here were terrible, right? I mean, I, I tried to mimic everything I was doing in Japan and it doesn't work here because it's totally different circumstance, right? I mean, the rice is different. The water's different. The just the environment's different. So nothing's going to function the same way, right? So the biggest challenge is definitely, okay, I understand what the process in Japan that I learned was, and I understood what, at the end of each process, what the goals were, yeah. right? So then I had to take my materials and my process and not just mimic that process, but try and figure out how do I start at my point and end up at the, at the same ending point, yeah. right? Yeah. Like, it's not important how long you soak the rice for unless you know yeah. what kind of rice you're using exactly. and right yeah. and how it behaves after you soak it yeah. so i had to kind intent. of yeah and your intent right so so instead of just mimicking the soaking time i had to look at okay at the end of soaking what are the goals yeah. right and then if i'm not getting those goals what do i have to change in order to accomplish those goals at the end of each step yeah. so that's really been the biggest kind of learning challenge yeah. um and it's also kind of the fun part too, yeah. but it's also really frustrating when you're yeah. like, "Oh yeah, I can make koji," and then yeah. you go, "Oh, yeah, yeah. it's not so good." Yeah. <laughs> so well, and, it's, and it's tougher at more scale too. You know, I mean, you're yeah. relatively small scale, but doing, small. doing a little pot in the kitchen versus committing to 
Yeah. Totally. I mean, I I max out around like 40 kilos in here. It gets to be, that's probably about enough. But, um, but yeah, I mean, it definitely, it becomes big challenges in terms of like, how do you make those jumps from one to the other? And then early on when we came back, I was homebrewing little batches to kind of keep in the flow, but I wasn't making koji. I was just buying it um, because I was making such small batches and I didn't want to be I didn't want to be investing time and energy in making a small koji thing when I knew that I wanted to make something like this, yeah. right? Yeah. It's like yeah. you're just adding more delays yeah. until you get to this. Yeah. 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 So Should we go sit down and yeah, have a drink? Let's do it. Yeah, let's, let's do it. get into it. Yeah. How many how long have you been doing this like officially set up? Uh, I formed the business in 2014, okay. and then I believe we built it like 2014, 15, that sort of in there. And then um, I think I had my licensing done before I had the building completed. Yeah. The actual production has probably been about the last year and a half. Okay. Um, I mean, I had been doing smaller batches, and then I had done one large batch a few years before that. But um, so yeah, it's like a year and a half of real production. So I'm feeling pretty good about it. Yeah. yeah. What with what kind of frequency do you brew? Like, are you? Are there certain? I'm, I'm doing stuff do every day. Yeah. I uh, initially I thought I was going to be brewing year round, and then um, it just got to be kind of apparent that the summer is a perfect time to not be brewing. Yeah. You know, yeah. and um, my goal is to basically be brewing nonstop and fall to winter to okay. probably like into April May. Yeah. Because um, I mean, we get still a lot of cold weather in April and May. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm I'm trying to get to the point where I can kind of make that my brewing season, and then take uh, summer as just like sales and um, improvement time. Yeah. And then I got two little kids. My kids are yeah. seven and about to be ten. So it's nice to have that time with them yeah, in the absolutely. summer. So that's like I mean kind of the whole reason of doing this is so I can not be answering to other people and just yeah. be with my family. Um, and this is kind of like that time that you never get back with your kids. Yeah, absolutely. So, absolutely. Well, so yeah, yeah. Let me flip a light on, get this off the table and yeah, we can sit down and have a drink and do some yeah, questions. Where you go. You get some, what, what, what of your parts did you get from Japan? Um, so the parts I got from Japan are those bins. These guys right here. Yep, just the rice. Yeah, So I got four of those from Japan. Um, I'm pretty sure they all came from Masuda Shuzo from Masuizumi. Yeah. I may have bought one online. I can't remember. But and then I bought some uh, some uh, fune, so, some of the, the press bags. Yeah. Um, and those ended up not being so great because they were the ones that were kind of musty. Okay. So since then, I just built my own. Yeah. I just sewed them all up and yeah. I use those. Nice. Other than that, that's it. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. I mean, I get, um, my Koji King comes from Japan. Yeah. And then also, uh, I've been using a dry yeast and that's been coming from Japan as well. Okay. So, so yeah, other than that though, everything else is all from the U.S. Yeah. Um, and one thing from Canada. Yeah. 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 Um, Obviously, in the U.S., we don't have the ability to get the Japanese rice here yeah. um, due to old grudges between our yeah. countries. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and honestly, that's fine to me. I mean, this is cow rose that we're yeah. drinking, that's and cool. I love it. 
Like, yeah. I think it's a great rice. Yeah. Uh, they're starting to grow more varieties here. Um, you can get Yamada Nishki. It's grown in Arkansas and in California. My rice room is from Sacramento. And um, the supplier uh, does have a list of quite a few sake rices they're starting to produce. Um, I did have a professor of koji come by uh, last year, two years ago. And we looked at the rice um, samples. And he had kind of, we looked at him and talked about him. And, you know, it's got a lot of the white spots in yeah, it. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. I think people who are not knowledgeable look at it and go, oh, that's uh, Tampakushitsu, right? Yeah. And I'm like, mm, I don't know about that. And he yeah. looked at it, he's like, no, that's not Tampakushitsu yeah. at all. It's all endos endosperm, right? Okay. It's like that, yeah. that beginning sac that yeah. provides all the energy. It's just yeah. there. So he was looking at it and he's like, dude, don't waste your time and money getting up. this because yeah. it's going to be way pricier and you're not going to get, yeah. I mean, the flavor might be a little nicer or more delicate, yeah. but it's not the quality that it needs to be to justify that cost expense. Yeah. Yeah. So, and then he was tasting the sake and he's like, yeah, don't, don't worry yeah. about it. You're doing fine. Yeah. Um, You're better off localizing yourself with the stuff that's available. Yeah. It's just, yeah. I mean, this is, this will be great in probably five or 10 years, Yeah. but they're just starting to grow out. They're just figuring yeah. out the challenges. Yeah. So, so yeah, I'll wait a little bit yeah. and see where this goes. Yeah. Um, cool. yeah. And I'm, I'm totally happy with the rice I'm using. Yeah. So, nice. yeah. Very cool. Very yeah. Very cool. I like it. So you're 100% Calrose right now? Yep, 100% Calrose. Uh, I do everything at 60%, yeah. um, just so I can put Ginja on the label if I feel yeah. like it. Should I desire? <laughs> yeah. Um, and I have I have four different labels approved right now, but I'm just selling under the one until I start to diversify things. Okay. So, cool. yeah. Cool. And what do you do for yeast? So I'm using 901. Okay. And I bought that yeast from Jeff when he closed down. Okay. Uh, before that, I was using uh, homebrew smack packets, and then I also had brought a culture from the Hokuriku area. Yep. It's designated for Hokuriku only. Yep. So I was able to bring a slant of that back, and yep. we tried propagating it, but the amounts that I was able to get out of it were all these large amounts that I wasn't able to use. So I was trying to cleanly take it out, and it was just degrading every time it would get exposed to oxygen. Yeah. And eventually it just became not a good yeah. thing to do. Yeah. So I've always had trouble with the uh, liquid yeast because unless you have a lab where you can really control it or you have uh, the correct amount sent to you, it's really hard to gauge your amount that's going in. The dry yeast, you have none of those issues. You just weigh it out and then you rehydrate it and it's what it needs to be. Yeah. And then also health-wise, for liquid yeast, anytime it's exposed, you're going to start degradation of it, right? Yeah. And contamination. And with the dry yeast, you don't have any of those issues. I mean, you could leave the bag open for a week, yeah. and yeah. it would be totally yeah. fine, yeah. right? Yeah. It's yeah. like, whatever, we're, yeah. we're good. Yeah. So I just found that um, the two biggest changes in quality to my sake came from when I changed my yeast source to the yeah. dry yeast because I could keep it much healthier. And then the second was when I started soaking my rice for longer. I wasn't getting good koji, I wasn't getting strong fermentation, and I think a lot of that is because I was trying to sh I was trying to soak it at a time where I felt like, oh, this is probably about the time they would do in Japan, right? Yeah. And then I started thinking about it a little more, and then I started hearing little birds chirp on my shoulder, particularly other brewers from Japan saying, you should soak it longer, right? Yeah. Soak it longer. Yeah. So. 
So yeah, once I started accepting those ideas and making those changes, it started really improving all the performance stuff, yeah. right? It made the Koji better, made my ferment better, made my end product better. Nice. That's kind of been the big challenge is redefining how I deal with my materials and, you know, like what is what is the end goal instead of just the process. Yeah. 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 Very cool. Yeah. Very cool. Very cool. So, so do you have a background in chemistry or I have zero zero chemistry background no no so uh as I said my dad was a carpenter my mom worked in corporate America so from a very young age I saw these two kind of different paths that you can take and I mean I've always been athletic and like using my body so I fell more into the kind of desire to do things like like I worked on a fishing boat I coached basketball I've you know, done jobs that are more physical that I, and I enjoy doing that much more. Right. So the sake making was the first thing where it was like, I'm doing something physical and it has a huge cultural heritage base to it. Right. And I felt like I was getting a glimpse into Japan that most people just don't get, including Japanese people. So I'll, I'll back up a little bit. Um, so I went to Japan to be with my wife. Okay. And, um, you guys meet here yeah, we met here through some mutual friends, okay. and then uh, one of her friends married a friend of mine, okay. and they introduced us. So uh, she lived here for about a year while I finished up college, and then I got a job teaching English, yeah. so I went to Japan, to Toyama. Yeah. So I didn't appreciate that job, but I did the contract, and then um, we lived for another like few months there, and then we traveled, and then we came back to Japan. Yeah. And we were trying to figure out visa issues. And at that time, we'd already been together for quite a few years. Yeah. So we're like, ah, we'll just get married, yeah. right? And it was always kind of the joke, oh, we'll get married. Yeah. And then when we yeah. needed it, we are like, okay, now we'll get married because yeah. it actually serves a purpose, yeah, right? Keep the party going. Yeah, so, so at that point, it changed my visa and I could do what I wanted. Yeah. And uh, Toyama's got forests everywhere. So I went to the unemployment office to Hello Work. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. I... I said, hey, do you have any jobs in the Forest Service? And the guy's like, no, we don't, but there's a sake brewery that needs help. Yeah. And I thought, okay, yeah. yeah. So he set up an interview, and um, I never formally studied Japanese. I just yeah. learned it from living with her family, and then I was playing on a basketball team. Yeah. So I used the Japanese that I knew, and I got a job in the brewery. Yeah. And that was with? That was at a place called Fumigiku. Okay. Fumigiku yeah. Shuzo. They make Hanea sake. Yeah, yeah. so... They were in an interesting position because the year that I started working there, they had just lost, um, I believe it was their elder son. He was running the business and he died. So the other son came to step in and take over. And um, he was basically doing all the brewing with us because he was trying to get acclimated to the brewery. So it was the Toji, the Toji's assistant, uh, the owner, myself, a wonderful old lady, and then eventually one other guy came on. So it was basically like five or six of us working. Yeah. And um, because it was so small, we got to do all aspects of the brewery, right? Yeah. Which is great. I mean, as a first-time yeah. worker, you want to see what's happening, right? Hands-on with everything. Yeah, and it was just, yeah, I mean, like, yeah. you can do little by little, but it just takes so long to build a clear picture of what's happening. Yeah. So now if I go to a different brewery and they're like, yeah, you just we're going to have you work on this section. I already have a general understanding yeah. so I can you know why they're doing it. Yeah, and I can actually focus on what I need to accomplish there. So um, that was a really neat experience. And the Toji is fairly young. I think at the time he was in his 40s and I was in like mid-20s. Yeah. So he and I had a good rapport. And uh, 
yeah, like he had a total plan for me. He's like, I'm gonna make you a toji, you know, yeah. we're gonna make we're gonna make sake in the winter and umeshu in the summer. Yeah. And then the bank didn't have uh, confidence that they would be able to sell how they'd normally been selling because mm -hmm. of the turmoil with the death of the brother. Yeah. So they reduced their loan amount by 20%, which happened to be the Toji's salary. Yeah, yeah. So at the end of that first season, when we had made these big plans, yeah. they were like, ah, oh, we can't really pay you what we said we were gonna pay you. So he's like, all right, thanks for the opportunity. Yeah. And he took off and returned home. Yeah. So when that ended, um, they offered for me to stay on, but I just didn't, like, I didn't feel like I was gonna get what I needed there to keep progressing in my life. Yeah. And we kind of had some things kind of calling us back to Seattle. Yeah. So that's when we decided, oh, we'll just go back to Seattle and yeah. kind of live there for a little yeah. bit. And we thought we'd be here a couple of years and it's been 12 or 13 years now, right? And I was yeah. like, oh man, how'd that happen? Yeah. So what so, year was it you, when you were in Japan, when you were with the brewery? It was, um, it was so 18, so two, it was probably like 2004, 2005, okay. somewhere in there. Okay. Yeah, and it was a great experience. Yeah. But I do have to say, one of the most useful things that they gave me he gave me Philip Harper's book. Yeah. Right. And there's a lot of books on sake and John Gauntner has some fantastic books yeah. and there's a lot of other books out there, but this is the first book that really breaks down the process yeah. in a meaningful way. Yeah. Um, I mean, he's got every part of the brewing process and he's got very specific details about it. So I was able to take this book and I was able to take what I was hearing and learning every day at the brewery. And then with these, you know, 15 pages of his brewing process, I was able to actually make sense of what was happening. Yeah, yeah. So if it hadn't been for his book, I probably wouldn't have been yeah. able to continue yeah. learning at the rate I was. Yeah. But with this, it just expanded. It like unlocked the gates, right? Yeah. And then, so like he gave this to me and the next day I came in and I was like, oh, so this is what Shinseki is. And they're like, oh, he understands yeah. now, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it became like a really fun thing for all of us. Yeah. Because uh, his assistant brewer had the book, yeah. and he's like, I don't read English. I don't yeah. know what half of this says, right? Yeah. He's like, I can only read the kanji on the, yeah. on the yeah, side, yeah, yeah, so, yeah, yeah. and it's autographed. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, um, so this is really like the Toji's patience and the Toji's ability to want to learn and work with me was huge. But this book is equally as huge because it provided a bridge between what he is teaching me and me being able to understand it in a meaningful way. Yeah. So that was like extremely critical. Yeah, and then he was a great Toji who was making really nice modern sake. Yeah. And that was part of the other thing that they had a little issue with is uh, Hanea, the, the new owner, yeah. or the son, he really liked the sake we were making as well, but his father was more of a, an old style sake drinker. Yeah. So there was kind of a philosophical battle about where to take the brewery. And obviously, the Sun won because yeah. their new sakes yeah. since then have been much more reminiscent of what we were working on yeah. than the older styles of sake. Yeah. Yeah. And then his wife has done a great job marketing for them. Yeah, and getting their sake out there because when I was working there, no one, I mean, hardly anybody in Toyama even knew yeah. that they were there. Yeah. And then a few years later, they're like the talk of the town of Tokyo. Yeah. Yeah, so they've been, they've been doing really well. Yeah. And um, that's great to see. And then the next place I worked was uh, Masuda Shuzo, Masuizumi. Yeah, yeah. Yep. So Masuda-san has been extremely kind to me yeah. and um, a really good influence on my ability to make all this happen. Yeah. The basic timeline was probably 2005. We I worked at Fumigiku that brewing season, 
it ended in spring and then summer I river rafted for a while with a friend of mine who has a company in Toyama and then I think that fall we moved back and um, and then I got a job working in a beer brewery so I brewed beer for almost six years in commercial breweries okay. and throughout that time I was home brewing and trying to build this vision of like how to pull this off yeah so initially, like a lot of people, I thought, okay, I'm going to get investment money. I'm going to try and make a brewery with a tap room and all that yeah. stuff. And then we were renting this house and we bought it from our landlords. Yeah. And when we bought it, my dad said, well, do you want to just do production from your backyard? Yeah. And at first I kind of fought it because I thought, oh, I want to I wanna have the education. I want to, you know, like have people see what's going on. Yeah. And then I realized, no, that's not what I want. I don't want to have investor money yeah. dictating to me how I have to yeah. do this, right? I don't want staff. <laughs> like, yeah. I've been staff for everybody yeah. my whole life, and I know how that relationship changes yeah. what work means to you. Yeah. And I just didn't want to be the one who is in that the flip side of that position trying to maintain the happiness for somebody that I'm never going to be able to maintain, yeah. right? Yeah. So I just kind of... I realized, yeah, that's not what my goals are. My goals are to produce and to sell it, and then everything that grows out of that is fine. Yeah. And then I thought, yeah, this could work. So we actually started doing this and built it, and it's been great. Yeah. So, yeah. And then throughout the brewing industry, I was able to get things like the brewing tanks and yeah. things like that through the connections I had made in the beer industry. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, so after we came back... Um, I mean, we obviously go visit my wife's family. We try and go every couple of years. Yeah. And uh, we went one year, and um, there's a beach I like to go surf at, and near there is where Masuda Shuzo is. Yeah. So my wife said, oh, there's a beautiful brewery. You should go check it out. And I went and met him and told him what I was up to. And he just said, oh, if you ever want to come hang out and work here and practice, then it's yeah. all yours. And I said, oh, sure, okay. And at the time, I thought, well, we never really visit in the winter because yeah. it's just not so fun yeah. to go in the winter. Yeah. And then uh, I think two years later, uh, we met my wife's family in Hawaii for a vacation. Then we went together to Japan, and it was like January. And I thought, oh, I'm here in the winter. Yeah. So I hit up Masuda-san, and he said, yeah, come and hang out. So I spent a month at the brewery there. And um, Fumigiku, when I worked there, I didn't... Um, I didn't live in the brewery. The only ones who stayed that, at the brewery were the Toji and his, yeah. his uh, apprentice yeah. or his, his assistant. Um, the rest of us all just went home at night. Yeah. Um, so I was involved in all aspects of making, but I didn't ever do like the midnight work on the Koji, right? I'd do all the other stuff. Um, so when I got to go stay at Masuda Shuzo, he gave me a room and I got to stay there and, and I just focused on Koji production and Shubo production and just really focused on trying to get those things down. Um, so it was a really fun experience and it, uh, Masuda Shuzo has a nice, um, their Toji's from Ishikawa and he's got an, of course an old brewing staff that comes with him. But then Masuda-san obviously sees the writing on the wall so he's hired quite a few younger guys from Toyama and so he's got two kind of core groups of workers. He's got the Ishikawa crew and then the Toyama crew. And obviously they work together, but it's kind of like the Ishikawa crew is training the younger guys to be able to take over the brewery. So for me, it was really fun because like the Toji and I have a good relationship, but it's hard to sometimes bridge that generational gap in vocabulary. And the younger guys are much easier for me to communicate with, right? 
Yeah, and it's and if I make mistakes, they just laugh at it. Where a lot of times, older people though, they're like, "What are you saying?" Right? Yeah. And I'm like, "Yeah, I'm just not that good." Yeah, <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, yeah. so yeah, so I've gotten a great opportunity there to connect with um, a really knowledgeable Toji, that older crew, and then also get this connection with this younger crew. So yeah, any kind of, I mean, they give me technical support if I need it, but to be quite honest, it's really not useful because the issues that I'm facing here aren't issues that they're going to face there, right? Like they're not going to have issues with the rice because they know what rice they're using and they've understood it for so long, right? They're not going to have issues with stuck fermentations because they just are past that, right? So like all those things that a beginning brewery <laughs> struggles yeah. with, yeah. somebody who's been doing it for, you know, three generations or five generations, they're not going to be struggling with yeah. that stuff, right? So they're helpful to an extent because they provide a great emotional support and they'll provide me information if I need. But the reality is that most of the challenges that I face here aren't challenges they're going to face because they're well, well beyond those challenges. Yeah. So, but they, they give me my, my Koji King comes from them. Um, you know, if I ever need anything, they're there to help me. Yeah. If I ever want to go back and study there, I'm, yeah. anytime I'm able to go and That's hang out. Yeah, it's a really nice feeling. Oh. So, yeah. Fantastic. Then, I mean, Masuda-san's kind of like the unofficial king of Toyama. Yeah. So yeah. it's kind of like, it's like rolling with royalty when yeah. you hang out with him. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's pretty fun. Yeah. I mean, I'm, he, he, he I'm a modest stuff. liver. Yeah. So when I go hang out with him, it's like, oh, yeah, that's the other side of life right yeah. there, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah have yeah. you met him? I have. Yeah. 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 He, he, he has, yeah, he has resources available. Yeah, he's, to, he's to just kind of regal, isn't he? Yeah. Yeah, he's like, he's... He doesn't have heirs, but he's got an heir yeah, about him, right? Absolutely. And you're just like, wow. Absolutely. So yeah, he's yeah. great. Yeah, he's done all kinds of great things for, of course, the brewery, but yeah, just the industry in general and the town. The town, the town around him. Yeah, I mean, that's that's one of the things, that's one of the reasons I went there in the first place yeah. is because, you know, like most little fishing villages are shacks of, dilapidated. yeah, dilapidated shacks with tin roofs, and you're just like, wow, that's not the Japan you envision. Yeah. And then when you go to Iwase, yeah. There's some of that, but as soon as you start getting close to that brewery, it's like, oh, that building looks like it's 300 years old. Yeah. Oh, that building is 300 years yeah. old, right? And why is it 300 years old? Because he saved it from being torn down, and they put the time and energy in to revitalize it, yeah. and he's done an amazing job there. Yeah. yeah. And it's not just so, what it looks like on the outside. It's the, it's the, the core, yeah. Everything that's yeah, and then he's, you know, he employs local carpenters to do the work. So the traditional carpenters who are... Tr you know, in most places are being lost because they don't have work. He's employing those people to keep those skills alive, right? There's inside the buildings they revitalize, there's pottery studios, there's glass studios, there's artists, there's all kinds of like things that are important about Japanese culture that are getting pushed out everywhere. And he's fighting to maintain yeah. that. So I, I think that's an awesome thing. Isn't it? Yeah, yeah it's it's, it's really, amazing. Really Have you special. been to the brewery as well? I've been to the brewery. I've been to, and I've been around. Like, he's kind of showed me. Around yeah, he takes everybody around the buildings and. Met the people who yeah. Were there. Isn't that beautiful? He's yeah. Really special work. Yeah. yeah, it's it's phenomenal. Yeah, I just love that. That's like his goal in life yeah. is to not just run the brewery, yeah. but to really be like a cultural beacon. Yeah. To Absolutely. say, hey, we're Japanese, and this is our culture, and we shouldn't just be throwing it away because other cultures in the world are saying you should. Yeah. Yeah, no, so doing, there, there's, he, he's a shining example, of, isn't he? Of, yeah, yeah I, I just love that about him. So, yeah. and then he's so generous with everything. Yeah. Like, 
And one of my friends said, oh, if I had that much money, I'd be generous too. And it's like, well, you can say that, but in reality, you don't know until you're in that situation. Yeah, and there's a lot of greedy people with a lot of money. And he is just so kind and giving. So, so yeah, I feel really blessed to... I mean, the first big blessing was working at a brewery where I got to be exposed to everything yeah. with a toji who wanted to teach me. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, uh, my first and, and toji. That's, and that's hard. That's that, that's yeah. not a given that you're going to get that. Not at all. Not yeah. at all. I mean, if I had gone to Masuizumi first, I don't know what the situation would have been yeah. because I'm sure Masuizumi would be as giving, but it's a different work environment. Yeah. It's a much bigger brewery, right? Yeah. You work in different sections each yeah. year, and you you have to work your way around. Yeah. And I wouldn't have had access to the overall learning yep. as much as I did at Fumigiku. Yeah. But then once I had a base for it, going to Masuda Shuzo, to Masuizumi was much more beneficial because then I could really focus on each individual aspect, right? And see a bigger operation. So I feel really lucky that I got the exposures that I did and in the order that I did. Yeah. And, um, and then just to have a, a family that supports me like yeah, this. Like yeah. my dad and I built all this and yeah. my wife's family has been extremely important in helping us stay financially yeah. alive yeah, 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 during yeah, this yeah. time. So yeah. so yeah, it's just a great opportunity and my goal is to not um, to not misrepresent what I learned, yeah. right? Like there's a lot of breweries opening right now, a lot of sake breweries yeah. opening outside of Japan. Yeah. And um, it's super exciting and not to like not to throw shade on anybody else yeah. but a lot of it feels sort of forced as well yeah. there's some very organic openings yeah. and then there's people who look at it and say oh there's a market developing and i want to be in on that market yeah. before it blows up right and i think you see the differences in that and the way in which people produce yeah. right yeah, yeah, yeah. and then um and then also there's a lot of difference in the kind of investments that people are putting in yeah. you know some people are putting in shoestring budgets some people yeah. are putting in very large budgets so it'll be interesting to see kind of like how that all pans out, how it all shakes out. yeah i mean for me obviously i'm not my goal is not to be a national yeah. distribution yeah. i mean it's it's barely even regional okay. distribution right <laughs> so like i really just want to focus on seattle yeah. and if i get over to the east side then bellevue and redmond is fine as well but like there's more than enough for me to just sell here locally and be fine yeah. for what I'm trying to produce. Cool. So but, are you, yeah, are you looking to scale at all? Or are you no, this is to... pretty much it. I don't want to scale up. Yeah. I want to scale up in terms of efficiency. Efficiency and um, quality. And quality, efficiency, yeah. and, and consistency, and all that stuff. But as far as overall volume, um, I can increase a little bit, but I really don't. My goal is not to really yeah. grow beyond this place. Yeah. yeah. So, and I just kind of think of like the Belgian beer breweries, right? Like there's this, there's this concept in our culture of if you're going to be a business, the idea is to just grow exponentially, right? Which is kind of ridiculous. (laughs) Not kind of, it's completely ridiculous, right? The idea of just finding a good, comfortable operating zone for yourself and then staying within that is much more attractive to me, right? Like if you look at the Belgian monks, they're not in it for money. They're in it for being able to support their habit of worshiping God, yeah. right? Yeah. Yeah. And somebody might come up and say, hey, we're going to sell twice as much beer as we did last year. We need you to double your production. Yeah. And they're going to say, well, no, that's not what we're in this for. We're in this so that we can practice what we need to practice every day to be mentally and spiritually sane, yeah. right? Yeah. And that's kind of where I view this. If I just keep growing it and growing it and growing it, 
I might get a little bit more money, but I would not be in a better place mentally. Yeah. I wouldn't be in a better place spiritually, spiritually right? Would, yeah. yeah, it would, yeah. It would just yeah. totally tip the other way. And then it would be like, okay, you don't see your kids. You don't go home. You just are here operating a brewery. Yeah. So this is really my ideal right now. Yeah. So are you doing this full-time now? Is this... Um, yeah, so I was I was working part-time trying to make this happen, and then last summer I had a lung collapse on me while I was working. Um, I was moving some heavy items, and I compressed my lung and popped a little hole in it and almost died. <laughs> so at the end of that experience, I spent two weeks in the hospital and had to have a bunch of tubes in out of me. It was horrible. Um, so at the end of that, my wife said, okay, I'll work more. You put energy and time into this. So now I take my kids to school in the morning, I pick them up in the afternoons, and I do this. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's pretty wonderful. Yeah. So, I mean, it's, it's like sort of full-time, but is it really full-time? Yeah. Not in terms of money coming yeah. back to me yet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But um, it's definitely a full-time effort right now. Yeah. So. Yeah. What I really like, just personally, about you're doing, aside from just this year of production, the fact that you're creating a way to integrate it into a life mm. style that is rewarding and meaningful for you that gives back to your family and to your before working at Fumigiku every place I've ever worked was if something goes right it's because the boss did something right yeah if something's messed up it's because the workers messed it up yeah, yeah. right <laughs> and it's just that constant dynamic right and when I went to Fumigiku uh, Mizukami-san the Toji yeah. you know I tasted a batch of sake and I was like wow, you make amazing sake. And he said, no, 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 we, we make sake, right? He's like, I don't do anything on my own. He said, without a group and without a cohesive circle, we can't make this work. And that was the first environment I'd been in, in, you know, 25 years that I was like, oh, okay, great. That's a very different mindset, right? And that's the traditional mindset of Japanese culture. So it was really amazing to get to be in that, kind of environment and experience that you can you can theoretically understand meditation and think oh if I meditate I'll get to this place and I understand it theoretically but it's a lot harder to actually do that in practice right and it's the same with that kind of mentality about working it's easy for a boss to say oh we're a family and everybody's family but then when stuff goes wrong no we're not a family I'm the boss and you screwed up right and that was not the case there if something went wrong it's like oh okay Maybe this person made the mistake, but it's because we all weren't paying attention at the time we needed to, right? There's much more acceptance of that idea in traditional crafts, right? I mean, if you're working for a bank, then yeah, it's probably your fault. (laughs) But but in those areas, in the sake breweries, that's not what it is, right? It's everybody has to function together. And if you're, you know, if you're all living in the same place for six months, you better figure out how to get along, right? You might not like everybody. You might have differences. But you still have to figure out how to get over it so that the product doesn't suffer and so that the environment is correct, yeah. right? Yeah. And that's something else that was big that I learned there is, you know, the product comes out well because the environment is correct. Yeah. And if you don't have the correct mindset and the correct cohesion, then it's not going to work. Yeah. 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 So those are things I really appreciate about that. And then when I came back and started brewing beer, it was like just typical American culture yeah, again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was like, oh, I hate this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so... Did you so, yeah. enjoy brewing, though? Did you enjoy brewing beer at all? Uh, I do enjoy beer, brewing beer. Um, I enjoy brewing sake a lot more yeah. because there's just more parts to it. There's more of a dynamic of... Um, okay, when you make beer, you have to give it a good environment to ferment in and yeah. to be created in. Yeah. 
but it's a lot less uh, affected by us, I feel like. Yeah. Right? Like, you make the mash, you make your mash, you boil it, and then you put it into a sanitized tank and it does its thing. Yeah. Right? Sake, it's like, it's a much longer fermentation. You're making your starch or your sacrification source on your own. Yeah. Instead of having malted rice or malted barley there with all the enzymes, you have to create it. Right? So the koji production alone is such a fantastic difference from yeah. beer making. Yeah. Right? That that process of having to do that correctly and then have that be the guts of your fermentation are really challenging, right? And if you're making beer, that's all on somebody else, right? That's on the maltster and yeah. that is their craft, right? So it's it's just a different dynamic. Um, the beer making in America is very American. There's rock music playing. Yeah. You're like, you're trying to slam out as many batches in a day as humanly possible. Right. So it's it's all about that production and distribution and volume and stuff like that. And uh, sake making is definitely different. Yeah. You know, it's about relating to each batch and saying, OK, we have a process that we have to go through. But if you treat every batch the same, you're not going to get the same results. Right. You have to pay attention to each batch individually and treat it as its own individual entity in order for it to perform the best way it needs to, right? And um, some breweries are very set on numbers, but a lot of breweries use those numbers to guide them, but they're also really set on experience, right? Tasting it, smelling it, watching the yeast, and you just don't get those experiences in beer making as much, right? You can take gravities every day. Um, you can't observe the ferment, right? You can't look in the tank and see what's happening. Um, and it's possible, but it's just not the way that it goes, yeah, right? It's not, it's not, a, it's not part of the, the flow of it. Process. Yeah, yeah. So so all those things are a little different. And then, I mean, the breweries that we're working in, we're all trying to grow, right? They're all trying to get to the next stage. So it's just all about production. It's all about trying to get it out quickly, ferment at the shortest time possible, right? Like all those factors. And I just felt... I felt very like, okay, these are the differences in the mindset between yeah. America and Japan, yeah. right? So I did enjoy it. Um, it. For me personally, it was extremely helpful for making this work yeah. because, uh, you know, I only spent one season at Fumigiku. Yeah. So I learned a lot, but there's still so much more to learn, right? Yeah. And um, And to be quite honest, like, sanitation in a beer brewery versus sanitation yeah. in a sake brewery are very different, yeah. right? You can wash a tank out with hot water and and scrub it, but you're only using that tank once every few months, right? Beer making, you're using that tank every other every week, right? As soon as it's empty, you clean it and you go right back into it, right? So the cleaning is much faster. It's much more chemical-based, right? You're using harsh chemicals to get all the biomaterials out, um, you're using pumps, you're using a lot of hot liquor, hot water. So it's, it's a different kind of environment. And it was really helpful for me to learn the different cleaning practices. Yeah. And it was also really helpful to work. Um, the last brewery I worked at is one of the largest regional breweries in the state right now. Um, I think they're the first or second largest in the state. Okay. So working there, I was brewing 80 barrel batches a day, which yeah one barrel is 31 gallons, yeah. right? So that's a massive amount of beer. And we would make four of those mashes a day, right? So I'd, I'd handle two of them. 
and then um, somebody else would come and do the other two, right? So working with that kind of volume was really helpful because then when I get in here and I look at my tanks, I'm like, yeah, they're big, but they're they're also pretty tiny, yeah. right? Like like a tank at that brewery would be the size of my brewery, right? So so that kind of stuff was really helpful, and then also. Um, it kept me in touch with yeast, right? And I got to learn a lot more about the yeast cycle, about uh, off flavors, right? About diacetyl compounds, about VDK compounds. I learned about that stuff and how to, first of all, like diacetyl, right? Diacetyl is something that's hardly ever talked about in sake. Yeah. But diacetyl is a byproduct of fermentation, right? And it's not something you want in your ferment. It's a natural part of the yeast cycle and if you treat the yeast correctly, it will reabsorb and break back down as a part of the natural cycle, right? But you do have to manipulate at certain times to make sure it reabsorbs, right? And that's something I never would have learned about at the breweries I was working in in Japan because it just doesn't come up, right? But in a beer brewery, beer is very, um, because the fermentations are faster, because you're fermenting at warmer temperatures and things like that, there's, more opportunity for diacetyl to get stuck in the beer, okay? So I got to learn about how to diagnose, how to get rid of, and how to understand what was actually happening about it, right? So all those kind of things that I wouldn't have learned about yeah. in Japan, yeah. I got the opportunity to learn about, right? Larger volumes, uh, faster pace, and really staying in touch with yeast. Like, I learned how to do yeast cell counts and stuff like that. And, and beer making you crop yeast, right? Mm. For sake, we don't. We just yeah. use fresh yeast every time. But it's helpful, even if we're not reusing the yeast, it's really nice to understand what's happening with it, right? Yeah. The the life cycle of the yeast, the breakdown of the yeast. Yeah. And then it gives me the availability to understand the, the way that yeast functions in sake better, yeah. right? And okay, why are they why are they fermenting differently? What yeah. like if I ferment my sake at 70 degrees, yeah. why isn't it gonna taste good, yeah. right? Yeah. Like, I understand that now, not just as a, because somebody said, oh, if you ferment too warm, it's not gonna taste good. Yeah. Well, that's fine, but you yeah. don't understand it well, until you yeah. actually get the background on what's going on with it. Yeah. So like, I think beer making is really critical for me to be able to, to get to the next step yeah. for me to have the confidence to be able to do this. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, so it's all just building one thing off the other, you know? Yeah. yeah okay. And so yeah. Yeah. So what's the process of, like, of getting the Home Fuji as a brand and generating awareness in and around Seattle? What's that process been like, and and what are you working on? So I don't really advertise. Yeah. I don't really do a whole lot, honestly. <laughs> I I um. My biggest sales point is just going out to places that I want to sell it at, and yeah. then introducing myself and my yeah. product. Yeah. And if they like it and are into it, then it's a place I want to be. And if they're not, then that's fine, yeah. right? Like I'll go back to places and try them again later, but if somebody's obviously not interested, then there's no point. I don't consider myself a salesman. I'm just a representative of it, right? Like salespeople go out and they try and push you to buy it, and I'm not doing that. Like that's not the goal. If somebody's not interested in it, then what's the point of pushing it, right? Because even if you end up getting it on their menu, it's not something they're going to try and get to the public that comes in yeah so you got to have places like soma sun's awesome because they're constantly pushing it right they're constantly like making people aware hey we've got a local sake here and then people are like oh let me try it right so so those are the places i want to be people who are into it who are excited about it um there's another really nice restaurant called nishino 
and that's one of the older. He's been around since '96, I think. And uh, Nishino-san, the owner of it, he worked with one of the original like big sushi guys out of LA, and then he came up here and opened up. So it's nice to be in somewhere like Somosans, which is relatively new, getting a lot of press and interest. And then it's also really nice to be in somewhere that's been established for a long time and has a good return clientele. So that's, I'm, I'm really like appreciating that kind of balance. And then I also sell it in different bottle shops, uh, small grocery stores. I'm into that kind of thing. Um, so yeah, basically just get out, do tastings. If people are into it, then they carry it. And if not, then that's fine too. I'm just trying to find a balance and like, I'd love to just, um, the idea for me is to get some really good clients and then try and cultivate those relationships to where everybody's benefiting from it. And right now I'm kind of like halfway there to being where I want to be. And I just got to keep getting more consistent with my production, my distribution. And then I feel like as that happens, then I can start growing it even more. But I also feel like because sake has got such a long history of Japanese people here, um, Japanese cuisine, Japanese culture is pretty accepted here, right? So like if I was opening a brewery in Montana, it'd be a very different scene, right? Um, So for myself personally, I don't feel like I need to do anything to grow the sake scene here. I just need to insert myself into it so people understand that there's a local product as well. Um, Now, initially I was thinking, you know, get a space, have a tasting facility and do education stuff. But in reality, there's enough sake being sold and distributed here to where I don't have to educate anybody to have a successful business, right? Um, And plus there's a lot of people who are in the education game, right? And I just don't need to do that. So, So I don't really... I mean, I just view it, it's just going to continue to grow as everything else grows. Like, I don't think it's going to hit a boom like beer did, right? I think it's going to be more like cider, um, where it'll start to get a little bit more market share, but it's not going to be, like, from even when we were young and beer started to get bigger, you know, everybody's looking at what the next thing was. Oh, the next thing is going to be mead. The next thing is going to be cider. The next thing is going to be this, right? And I think sake is going to fall into that same category. Yeah. There's going to be an uh, interest around it. Yeah. There's going to be a little bit of a boom. And then that will increase people's awareness of it. Yeah. And then I think it will kind of, kind of level off, flat, flat, right? Yeah. I mean, I think sales will keep going up, but it's, yeah. it's going to hit like a growth. And then it's going to kind of level off yeah. and keep growing much yeah. slower, yeah. right? Yeah. That's kind of how I envision it. Yeah. Who knows? It could be totally wrong. Yeah. It could fall flat on its face or it could totally skyrocket. But I don't. I don't see it skyrocketing because Americans like beer. Yeah. (laughs) That's all there is to it, right? End of story. I mean, Americans drink wine and Americans drink beer and Americans drink hard liquor. Yeah. Right? And that's going to continue. And what we should be looking at is we should be looking at Japan because Japan has lost a lot of their sake drinkers because of wine, beer, and hard alcohol, right? So if we're looking at how the trend is going to go, it's probably more logical to think that those are going to continue to grow. And all the other stuff, cider, uh, like now they, you seen this kind of stuff? I heard like, about this. I it's essentially too high, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, so, yeah. so in all the years that we've been back here, every time we go to Japan, we fill our suitcases with too high and come yeah. home, we're like, thank God we can drink too high. Yeah, yeah. So this stuff is probably going to take off more than sake, yeah. right? 
because this is this stuff is it's like how many people drink chuhai every day yeah. in japan everybody does right it's yeah. like your breakfast drink yeah so eventually i think i see something like this catching on more than yeah. sake does right yeah. now sake is going to get a better niche market yeah. it's going to continue to grow in in aura it's yeah. going to continue to grow in price yeah. it will probably continue to grow in terms of sales numbers yeah. But I don't think that that's going to translate into like a widespread growth, yeah. right? Yeah. Like there will be hot spots for it, yeah. but it's not going to be a national boom, yeah. right? There's just too many dead spots that no one yeah. gives a shit about it, yeah, yeah, right? Like yeah, yeah, yeah. go to Iowa, yeah. go to Minnesota, yeah. go to Illinois, go wherever, right? Yeah. I mean, you get past the edges yeah. and it's a pretty vast it's land in between, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So if you're in New York, yeah, you're going to sell sake. If you're in Boston, maybe not so much, right? Like San Francisco, L.A., Seattle, Vancouver, Canada. Yeah, yeah, those places are great markets, right? Vancouver might actually be questionable um, from what I understand. There's a lot of challenges in producing and selling sake up there um, just because the laws are very different than the U.S. But... um, yeah, I mean, San Francisco, God, what kind of market is there? It's a massive market just waiting to be tapped, yeah, right? Yeah. I think Seattle's similar. Yeah. We're not as spendy as San Francisco. Yeah. People hold on to their money a little tighter up yeah. here. But it, it will continue to grow in terms of um, cost of sales, right? Yeah. People are going to spend more on yeah. it as it gets better. Yeah. People are going to – I just look at it as more of um, – It's more of like a, a status market, yeah. right? Yeah. Like if you understand sake and you can afford these really expensive bottles, it's a status mark, yeah, yeah, yeah. right? Yeah. If you can afford to go to an education class and drop a grand for a weekend on yeah. taking a class about how to drink sake, that's an, that's an ego thing, right? Yeah. That's like an opportunity to say, oh, I understand something that you don't, yeah, yeah, yeah. right? So I see that kind of stuff continuing to grow. Um, I see more people going to Japan to do brewery tours. I see that kind of stuff expanding. But in terms of how that affects the overall market in the U.S., I don't think it's going to be a huge effect. Yeah. 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 So, but I don't know. I mean, I've been been wrong on a lot of things before. So, but yeah, I mean, I think it it will definitely keep growing. It's just not going to be this massive explosion that I think a lot of people are hoping hoping for. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's good, honestly. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. I don't want it to just yeah, blow up, right? Yeah, kind of much more organic growth. That, yeah, you know, yeah, because what happens when things way, blow up? Yeah. They blow up, and then a few years later, there's nothing left, right? Two years later, there's... <laughs> yeah, 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 which are delicious, by the way. Yes, I haven't tried um, it yet. This, it wasn't, somebody just told me about this. Like, have you heard of this? And yeah, I mean, that's I, I that's know. one brand. There's All of a sudden, there's like 15 different brands on the yeah, shelf I've of that stuff, right? I've been in town. I've met a couple people who are trying to start up something very Yes. Yeah, I went down to uh, uh, Seattle Cider Company. Yeah. They're making seltzers. Okay. Um, there's a yeah. There's probably quite a few people who are looking at that, yeah. and you're like, great, you ferment sugar, yeah. carbonate it, yeah. and add some flavoring. Yeah. That's pretty damn lucrative, right yep. there, right? It certainly is. It's a lot easier than making sake. It certainly is. Yeah. So. Yeah, so that stuff, I mean, that's the kind of stuff that blows up nationally. That's the kind of stuff that gets huge market shares and then can maintain it because it's easy, right? Yeah, yeah. like a bottle of sake is a lot harder to maintain and sell, and it takes a lot more energy and work to make, and then the profit margins aren't nearly as good. Yeah. So 
So yeah, and it, it also comes to volume, you know. For something like this, I'm not going to blow up. Yeah. I'm hoping to blow up in my own little yeah. market yeah, and yeah, maintain yeah. that. Yeah, yeah. But if you want to be big, you have to be really big, yeah. right? Like you got to be sake one big to be able yeah. to get past that distribution level. Yeah. If yeah. you're halfway between me and them, yeah. you're in kind of a weird place, right? Because yeah. you're not quite big enough to just massively uh, distribute. Yeah. But you're also too big to just sell a little bit because you're going to run out of juice in no time, yeah. right? So, so yeah, I think those are kind of the trends that are going to happen. Like yeah. people are going to try and make it the next big thing, yeah. but it's going to be like mead and cider. Like yeah. people will accept it, yeah. it will get a certain amount of market share, and then it will kind of level off. Yeah. I feel like, yeah. yeah, which I think is fine. Yeah, I don't, yeah. I don't think it needs to be this robust growth. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 So we'll see what happens. Yeah. That's a questioner for uh, Mr. Gauntner. Yeah. Yeah. Here, let me grab a, cool. something that we can drink here. Cool. Perfect. Here. Should we we'll, we'll do turn it. this off? We'll, we'll, All right. We'll kill this guy. Thank you. Perfect. Let's get this going here. And that will do it for one more episode of Asake on Air. As always, a huge thank you to all of our listeners and supporters out there across the globe. If you happen to have a minute and would be so kind as to leave a brief review, and rate us over on Apple Podcasts or whatever platform it is that you are enjoying the show on. It would really mean the world to us, as well as help get the show and the word about sake out in front of more and more listeners. You can go ahead and send any thoughts or feelings about this week's or any of our shows to questions at sakeonair.com. Or if you'd like to follow along with our adventures, you can find us at, at sakeonair on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. As always, the show has been made possible together with the fantastic support of the Japan Sake and Shochu Makers Association. A big thank you again to everyone. Take care out there and come by. Mm-hmm.